Sunday mornings, we're studying some of the godly characteristics, traits, virtues of a proven character, one that is pleasing to God and one that will be rewarded before the judgment seat of Christ. So we're talking about believers. We're talking about Christians and how the Holy Spirit will transform us. He saves us as we are. We can't clean ourselves up, can't make ourselves presentable before God, but the grace of God saves us, cleanses us, forgives us of all sin and the guilt of sin, but then he wants to transform us. He wants to change us, and this is something that is so important for us as Christians to desire, to understand that he wants to and that he can because he's the one who does the work, but we do have to surrender our, our lives and our will to this working. And so this morning, we're ready to consider the virtue of commitment. Now, the word commitment may not immediately sound like a, a virtue or a character trait, but it is something that we as Christians should be characterized by. The, the definition of the English word commitment is one I think we all understand. It's, it's the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or an activity, to be committed to something. Now, in the, in the natural, we often use this word to describe someone who's characterized by an all-out dedication to their job or to a sport, for example. We often use that, that word in, in, in that context. If we say someone is committed to their job, we're saying they spend a lot of time and energy to be successful in that job. If someone's committed to a sport, it means they spend a lot of time, money, effort, training to be the best that they can be in that sport. We understand what it means to be committed in those areas. But what does it mean to be a committed Christian, what is God looking for in our life? Commitment takes sacrifice. It takes uh, a lot of inconvenience in your life. It takes discipline and sometimes even pain. When you're talking about sports, someone who's committed to their sport, uh, the popular saying is no pain, no gain. Well, that's, that's commitment. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9 and see what commitment looks like in the life of a believer. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. What are we called on to be committed to? What is the sacrifices that are necessary in order to be what God wants us to be? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is a temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Paul says, therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified for winning the prize. What is the, the prize in this Christian race, this Christian life that we are to live? Well, we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that it is that closest place to Jesus Christ in eternity. But to obtain to that place, there's a commitment that's necessary. 
God is looking for committed Christians who dedicate themselves to being successful in reaching these goals, in being what God wants us to be, in knowing and doing his will, and to be and do everything he wants us to be and do. Now, some call Christians who are fully committed to this goal, to winning the prize, to being one that is characterized with a proven character, some people say that's fanaticism. Instead of saying, well, that's a committed Christian, they usually say, you're a fanatic. And they don't mean that in a positive way. Uh, They're saying that uh, you're obsessive. But when we look at what the Apostle Paul says, in the light of all of the mercies and the grace of God that saved us, that gives us the hope, the certain expectation of a home in heaven, glory, eternal life, Paul says that's not obsession, it's not fanaticism, it's reasonable. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, in the first two verses. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is, because of the mercies of God, do you really believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you really believe that we were born in sin and that we were under the, the wrath and condemnation of God? That is an eternal condemnation. Do you really believe that? And do you believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins? Because of those mercies that we didn't deserve. What should we do? If we truly believe that. That you present, yield, surrender. Your bodies a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God. Which is your reasonable. That is the word is rational. It makes sense, service, your reasonable service to God. It's not obsession for us to have this commitment to God and his ways in every area of our life. Verse 2 of that passage is going to lead to some decisions, to to some commitment. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are to be transformed. We're to to continue to change every day as we learn to yield our will to the will of God. But too many Christians, once they're saved and know they're going to heaven, a lot of Christians don't take time to even meditate. What does the Lord want of my life? What needs to be changed? How how do I need to, to... talk differently than I used to talk, to think differently than I used to think, to react differently than I used to react to things and to people, to circumstances. We need to stop and commit ourselves to this process of transformation. Now, the opposite of commitment is half-heartedness or double-mindedness. A Christian who is half-hearted, not committed, is one that has other interests other goals than the one single goal of pleasing the Lord in everything they do. If you have other goals, well, I want this job, or I want this relationship, or I want this amount of money in the bank, or I want this before I will be happy. If any of those other things are your goals in life, you're not committed to Christ. Again, I'm talking about Christians who are eternally saved, but you lack a commitment You're not characterized by this godly virtue. Let's go to James 1. James chapter 1 and verses 5 to 8. 
God is looking for committed Christians, not half-hearted Christians who know they're saved and going to heaven, but they're not yielding to this transforming process. They're pretty much, they act and talk like they did before they were saved. James 1, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives, gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You'll have everything you need to be what God wants you to be. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded that is, of divided interest, a d- double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Christians, can they be unstable? I know a lot of unstable Christians. And it's because they're not fully committed to this one single goal of pleasing the Lord that we might win Christ. Because we love him. Because he first loved us. A believer who's characterized by commitment has this single purpose as uh, we can read in, in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, one single purpose in life. Can, can, in life. can your life really be that simple? It needs to be that everything you do and everything you say is to be pleasing to the Lord. Not to please someone else, not to please yourself, but to please him. Now what we'll find out is when that is your single purpose, to please him, you'll find out that's the only real pleasure there is in life. You'll know the blessing and the joy, the peace, contentment that can only be found in the will of God. You'll enjoy other things. You will please some and you'll make others angry. But please the Lord over and above everything else. This was Paul's single purpose for living. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our boasting is this. This is what he was glad to know about himself. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity. And that word in the Greek, it means single, singleness of mind and purpose. Can you live a simple life? Yeah, that's what God's looking for. And godly sincerity, that means to be purified by the sun's rays. In other words, your, your life is transparent. You're sincere. There are a lot of people that are sincerely wrong. But that's not what it means here. This, this sincerity has to do with you're an open book. That you have this one single purpose in living. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. A divided heart has too many other ambitions. A single heart, I want to please the Lord. Doesn't matter what else I do. matter Whatever else I experience in life. I want to be pleasing to the Lord in whatever I do. Matthew six twenty four. Here Jesus tells us, you can jot this down if you want, but the principle is you cannot serve two masters. In this case, in Matthew 6, he's talking about those who serve money. They live to make money. They live to be rich in, in natural things. But you can't serve God and serve money. You can only have the one desire I want God and I want his ways in my life. And whatever else that includes, if he brings whatever he gives me in this life uh, materially, I take it from the hand of my father and I'm, I'm content with that. 
Also in verse 33, Matthew 6, 33, when you have this single purpose of pleasing the Lord, it does not mean, and this is where people get, when you start talking about this kind of life and they call it fanaticism, of this unconditional surrender to the will of God, they don't understand. It doesn't mean that you are not going to enjoy natural things and natural relationships. In fact, the only way you can enjoy those natural things of life and the relationships of family, husband, wife, friends, the only way you can enjoy those to the fullest if you put Jesus first. That's the only way. If you try to go at it backwards, well, I want to have good friends. I want to have my family. I want to have this. I want to have that first. And then you put that's your commitment to those things. You're not going to fully benefit from those things. You have to put him first. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty three. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what's right in his sight. And all these things shall be added to you. I enjoy my marriage. You know why? Because I put Jesus first. I'm the kind of husband I need to be. Christy's the kind of wife she needs to be. Because first and foremost, we put Jesus first. And then all of the other problems that are a part of marriage, all the issues that are reality, when you put two people under the same roof, they're going to be there. But there's that unshakable foundation. I want what Jesus wants. And even if you fall clear down to the foundation, you have that solid foundation. That's just in your marriage. The same thing with your friendships. Same thing with every relationship and everything that you experience in life. You put him first. He'll supply what you need to, to be successful in these other things. You'll be the kind of employer you need to be to your workers. You'll be the kind of employee that you need to be if you put Jesus first. It, it, that's the only way that life works. And so when we talk about this unconditional commitment to Jesus and his ways, as, are, as we're instructed in the Bible, it's not fanaticism. It's not obsessiveness. It's just rational. He created us. He created man. He knows what we need to be successful and prosperous to enjoy this life that he's given us. Why wouldn't we look to him first? That's a commitment that we need. Colossians 3. Now let's take it a little bit further. When you are committed to Jesus and his ways, that commitment is also going to manifest itself in your daily duties and responsibilities and activities as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as an employee, an employer. Your commitment to Christ is going to cause you to be committed to be the best that you can be with what God has given you doesn't mean you have to be the best. It's not a competition. But too many Christians, they are employees that they just try to get by with or whatever they can get by with. Anybody, uh, I won't ask for hands. Anybody work with somebody like that? Just in your mind, think of them. We've all known them. Students that don't apply themselves. It's not because they're not capable. They just don't apply themselves. And I'm talking about Christians. But that kind of lack of commitment is showing a lack of commitment to Christ. Why? Colossians three seventeen to 24. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. <coughs> Wives, 
Submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. It's a commitment in your marriage. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest you become discouraged. Fathers, parents, take your responsibility seriously as unto the Lord, not just because it's convenient or inconvenient for you to deal with your children when and where and how you do, but because it's right for his glory and for the good of your children. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Well, if slaves are told to do that, how about us who are well paid in our jobs in this democratic country in which we live? I think it applies to us too. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily. That is, with all your heart. That's commitment, isn't it? As to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That's your commitment to him and to him alone. But then when that commitment is fully to him, do you see how that begins to trickle down? And impact everything else you do, every other relationship you have. You'll, you'll be committed to those things as well to be what God wants you to be in those relationships, in those circumstances. Again, we're not talking about trying to compete with others, to be the best, better than everybody else. Be the best that you can be with what God's given you. And don't settle for anything less because you're doing as unto the Lord. Anybody ever here will have worked with several carpenters and They kind of do a half-hearted job, and, well, that's good enough for who it's for. You ever use that term? Again, I don't want to see your hands. But you see, that can't be true with anything we do, because who's it for? It's for him. So school, work, family, we always do the best we can, looking to him, calling upon him. Lord, give me the strength, give me the wisdom to do the right thing here. But I I want to bring glory and honor to you commitment. In Mark 12, we can just jot this down. Most of you are familiar with it. Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he lists, first of all, you'll love the Lord with all your heart. That means with all your thoughts, your feelings, and your passions. With all your soul. That is the very breath of life, the vitality of life. You love the Lord with all your soul and with all your mind, your intellect, your understanding. And with all your strength, with all your ability, with all your power. Jesus said this is the first commandment. And it hasn't changed. Because of grace, we can actually obey this command. Not in order to be acceptable to God, but because we already are. Because that love of God's been put in our heart. I can love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not fanaticism. It's rational. It's reasonable. Psalm 37, before we can be characterized by commitment, we have to make a commitment. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 6. Psalm 37 and verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When your desire is to be pleasing to the Lord, he'll give you that desire. He'll do the work, but you have to commit to it. This is the commitment you make. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Not, not you, 
but he will. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. But do you want that? Do you want to be characterized by one who is righteous, who does what's right in God's sight? It's not a matter of aggressively trying to be the best. It's not gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to be a good Christian today. No, it's a surrendering. It's trusting him to do the work, wanting him to do the work, desiring that work, but letting him do it. It's a surrender. The Hebrew word that's translated commit in in this 37th Psalm, it literally means to roll or to wallow, which gives the thought of trust. Now, when, when, when I looked at that word, for some reason, it conjured up a mind when you were younger, anybody on the top of a hill, just on a nice spring warm day, you wanted to roll down that hill. It's pretty steep. And once, once you get started, you're not going to stop. You're just going to roll. It's a commitment. Are you willing to make that commitment to Christ? To trust him that he's going to take care of you in all of those circumstances and those revolutions of life? Commit your way to the Lord unconditionally. Some of you that have been part of corporate training camps, you've had the trust test where they, you fall, fall over backwards and your co-workers are supposed to catch you. <laughs> a trust fall. That's a commitment. Uh, there are not a whole lot of people that I trust to do that. But I can trust the Lord. I'll make that commitment. Take the plunge. Trust him. Second Timothy 1. The Apostle Paul did. In Second Timothy 1.12. Second Timothy 1.12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed. That is deposited to him until that day. Can you commit your life to to Christ, your family to Christ, your job, your trial, your circumstance, your sorrow, your tragedy. Can you commit those to the Lord and let him bring about what he wants to bring in your life and through your life? Paul had surrendered his entire life and he wasn't ashamed and he wasn't disappointed and you won't be either. The apostle Paul uses athletes often to compare Certain things that apply to them that apply to Christians in our walk. And like an athlete, a Christian who wants to be successful in doing the will of God, there are some things he needs to commit himself to do in order to win the prize. First Timothy 4. So it's one thing to say, yeah, I want God's best and I want to be committed. But what are we committed to? First Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. If we took time to divide and to, to look at each of these words, it's basically saying with your entire life. Every area of your life. Natural things, natural desires and needs. The purity there has to do with sexual purity. Every area of your life. Be an example of what God wants to do in the life of his children so that others can see that. Verse 13, if that's going to be true, till I come, give attendance to reading. What do you suppose we ought to be reading? The Bible. To exhortation, to doctrine, teaching. It matters what you believe. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Timothy was called to the ministry. 
But each of you, each of us, are called to minister to the body of Christ in some way. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Do you take time to stop and think and ponder? What does that mean? How should that impact my life? How should that change me? I'm supposed to be being transformed. How should this transform me, what I'm reading? Give yourself entirely to them. That's a commitment. That your progress may be evident to all. People should see the change. You should see the change in your life. And when you see that change, you don't start, start boasting about it. But you fall on your knees and say, thank you, Lord, for doing what I could never do on my own. Changing me. Transforming me. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The saving, the deliverance that's referred to is from the coming apostasy. When You read it in context. To be saved from the apostasy. I was recently shown an article that one of the, the main Christian colleges that have has been put out many good fundamental Christian preachers that it is now fallen into the world's, well, they're being conformed to the world. And they're accepting many of the policies of the world that are in direct contradiction to the word of God. That's apostasy, and that's danger for God's people. But if you will do these things, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, read, follow the exhortations, Pay attention to the doctrine that you hear and that you believe and that you follow. It'll save you. It will deliver you from that danger that's robbing so many of God's people and certainly robbing God of his glory. Luke 14. We're called on to make a commitment. That commitment is like a good athlete who's committed to their sport. It's going to involve some inconvenience. It was a little inconvenient to come to church today in the little snowy event that we've had. But that's pretty mild compared to some of the other inconveniences that living for Christ will bring. But it's going to cost us something. Is it worth the cost? Is this commitment worth the cost? When, when the board members considered what the Lord would have us for direction concerning building this building, we took time to figure the cost. We considered the cost of not having a place where we could assemble on our own. We considered all those things. And we knew that there were going to be some unforeseen things that came up, and they did. But we prayed, we counted the cost, and then we committed ourselves. And it was a big commitment. But because we felt that it was God's will and God's direction, when the unforeseen things came up, he took care of them. And once we got started, I mean, you know, once you start down the hill, <laughs> you're going to keep rolling until you get to the bottom. And that's true of everything that you do in life when you commit your way to the Lord. Count the cost. Know there's going to be sacrifice involved. Know there's going to be difficult things that come up. But Luke 14 tells us, 25 through 33. Now great multitudes went with him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also... He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my follower. Now that sounds like a commitment. Now we understand that Jesus is not promoting that we hate these relationships. But in comparison to our love for him, our love for these others will seem like hate. Because some will be called upon to leave their families 
in order to be what God wants them to be. Not because they choose to leave them, but because if they stay the course, these others are going to fall away from them. Are you willing to do that? To do the will of God, no matter who it displeases? That's a commitment, isn't it? And it's also a cost. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. To bear our cross is not our own problem. A lot of times you hear people say, well, that's his cross to bear. Our cross is our identification with the Christ of the cross. Because we identify with him and his ways, there's going to be those who despise us. Are you willing to make that commitment anyway? Jesus is not asking you to, to go into this commitment blindly. He wants you to know some things. Verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So you become a laughingstock, a reproach. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able to whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my follower, my disciple. Wow, that's a commitment. A king going to war, sending his army into battle, that's a commitment. We need to count the cost, saints. Know there will be sacrifices when you make this kind of commitment to Christ. To serve him, to honor him, to be pleasing to him. There's going to be difficulties that arise. There are going to be things in your life that you just, you can't understand why, why they are there. But keep trusting. He knows what he's doing. Don't give up on him. He never gave up on you. Commit your life entirely into his hands. And he will provide everything you need in order to have God's best for now and for eternity. Can we believe that, saints? We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Jesus was committed to me. It was his commitment of love that gave the ultimate price that has conquered my heart. To make me understand it's only my reasonable, rational response to commit myself to him.